The story of Europe's economic challenges keeps taking new twists. But as friends from Greece and Spain explain, people are starting to recognize what's been fueling their economic recession. Finally, suddenly, Greece had money, and that money was spent in the wrong way. We have made airports that have never been used because there's no need for them, but they needed to spend the money. Coming up, it's a personal look at Europe's financial crisis and thoughts on how to turn it around. I think that most people's expectations in Europe is always the state must. Huh? The authorities must find a solution. It begins with people to take initiative. People should start businesses and start working. The powerhouse economy of Germany is attracting people to its capital city, Berlin. It is a happening city. It is still an affordable city. And so lots of people go there, move there from Spain, from Portugal, from America. Get a traveler's update on Berlin and debate Europe's economic crisis. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Two of the worst unemployment rates in Europe are in Spain and Greece, where the term economic crisis is not considered an overstatement. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll put the latest headlines in perspective with a personal look at how people in Europe are debating their economic policies. And we'll do that with guests from Spain, Greece, and Belgium. But let's start the hour in Germany. Germany has Europe's largest economy, with an unemployment rate that's only about a fifth of the figures coming out for Spain and Greece. A visit to Berlin can demonstrate why. Ever since the wall came down back in 1989, there's been a unique energy driving Berlin. From year to year, the city keeps reshaping itself. But gentrification comes with a price, one that keeps newcomers on their toes. We've invited two Berliners to tell us how we as travelers can get a taste of Berlin's energy and its just-do-it attitude. Macy Hitchcock is British-born and has made Berlin her home for the last 10 years. She contributes to a podcast about expat life in Berlin. And Holger Zimmer has lived in the city long enough to remember when the Berlin Wall came down. He works with the city's main public broadcaster, RBB. Macy, Holger, welcome. Thank Thanks you. for having us on the show. Holger, you've been in Berlin and witnessed a lot of changes. In a nutshell, how has Berlin changed in the last generation? Oh boy, I'm, I've been living there for about 25 years now and uh, it has dramatically changed. I remember still going over when the wall was still up and suddenly, you know, boom, the wall comes down in 89 and there was just an eruption of freedom, happiness, chaos, lots of new enterprise. People would just do something. I think this is Berlin, what Berlin was known for and still is, just do it, you know, just find an old apartment, find an old, you know, factory space and just put a club there, put a bar there, do something. And really this kind of energy, that spirit is still there. And so it has changed in that from, let's say, partly being very much rigid dictator society, dictatorship, and then suddenly freedom. The fall of communism almost created a vacuum where all of the creative energy in the eastern part that was not allowed to spread its wings because of the communist regime, suddenly the regime is gone. You've got this almost like a cultural compost pile ready to bring out the flowers of the German and the Berlin culture. Absolutely. And it really is still happening to this day. And now we talk about changes now. Uh, of course, we have to talk about lots of people moving to Berlin. It is a happening city. It is still an affordable city for most, you know, compared to others in Germany or all over Europe. It's a really relaxed and cheap capital city. And so lots of people go there, move there from Spain, from Portugal, from America. Maisie Hitchcock, you went to Berlin 10 years ago or so as a student and a teacher, and uh, you ended up staying there. What is it that attracts expats to Berlin, and how is it so vibrant today for people who are moving in? I think it's a sense of freedom. Freedom was the word when I first came to Berlin. Actually, it was in 99. So I caught the tail end of the kind of the really post-wall excitement. But basically, I think since then it's changed again. I think part of the attraction is also the change in itself. People say Berlin's a city that's always becoming but never is. And I think that sums up Berlin really well, is there is a sense of dynamism, that it's changing. Tomorrow some bar might be closed, a new one will open somewhere else. Um, that's changing not necessarily for the better at the moment because of gentrification. But again, you know, that's the nature of the but city. But there is that churn, and that's sort of what happens when you have fertile soil, is yes. a lot of growth and a lot of change. And yep. I know 10 years ago I had a show on a TV show in Berlin, and, and uh, it was almost all in the West, and I was just there recently... And the new show is almost all in the East as things are moving East and, and writing a guidebook on Berlin, it's perpetually out of date because things are always changing and it's yes. always playing catch up. Macy, talk about gentrification because that yes. is really a big dynamic. How do you see gentrification in Berlin? 
When I first arrived in Berlin, it felt like a very egalitarian city. Uh, they didn't feel like there was a great big poverty gap, which there really kind of was, but I didn't see it uh, because you had people from East Germans who'd grown up in the city, uh, who'd lived in the same apartment their whole lives, living in the centre of town, which was unheard of in London, where I come from. And now those people have been pushed out. Well, I can imagine, for instance, when you have the wall, if you're pushed up against the wall, that's sort of like, who wants to live there? Let the Turks live there. So that was a big Turkish area. Suddenly the wall's gone, and the Turks have what was the land nobody wanted. Suddenly it's in the center because the wall's gone, and then it becomes really expensive. And I would imagine the economic dynamics push the working class out as the fancier people come in. Is that an example of the change? Yes, exactly. Kreuzberg, which is a very Turkish area, uh, it's changing a lot. So the rents are going up, but Holger, can you still find, if you're a young creative person just looking to spread your wings and do things that are creative, uh, affordable rent in Berlin? You can still find that, but you really, as as Macy rightly said, you have to kind of move to different areas. So really, you can kind of follow the the movement like on a map of the city. Like, you know, let's say Prenzlau back where I live, that was like really the happening place in the 1990s. And now it's, you know, families and kind of much more relaxed, but also, let's say, quiet. And now if I'm a young student, I would come to Berlin. I'd have to go to Neukölln or Wedding because rents are still cheap there. The rising tide of gentrification. But when you first came to Prenzlauenberg, what would the rent be? I I think in my first apartment, uh, after squatting it, uh, we paid like 28 marks or something like this for like a nice... That'd be $10 a a month Kind of like this, a month. After squatting, so you actually lived there for free. For a while, yes. That was, the, that was the days, you know. That was, you <laughs> that was could the, just go with it. Like many people had left, you know. So there were open apartments. And then the whole, the governing rules, like, you know, the officials that would give you an apartment in the GDR if you were lucky to get one, they were not there anymore. So all suddenly, wow, these apartments were there, you know, for people to take. You know, young people so did you it. You just like, put on your own lock and, and squat there. And just live there for a while. And, and, and then and you then go s- to the Somebody, uh, the officials. government would say, okay, the party's over. You now have to pay for your utilities. Well, yeah, we actually, we, we went there. We said, here, listen, we've been living there. We actually, you know, patched it up a little bit. So, hey, I mean, we, can we have a contract now? Let's, let's be legal here. And it worked, you know, and that was great. And so, I mean, things are changing. But you can really see it on the map. Whenever there's a happening place, of course, it's a place full of young people, artists, students, and they make it happen. Like Neukölln now, is, a lot of it is happening in Wedding. So, you know, things so move new, around. A the bit new like. happening zones are moving progressively further out as things gentrify. But from a traveler's point of view, Prenzlauenberg is so accessible and such a delight. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Macy Hitchcock and Holger Zimmer about what's going on in Berlin from a traveler's point of view. Macy, when we think about Prenzlauenberg and sort of the the nightlife and the fun things we can do as a traveler or an expat or a Berliner. How do you connect with the fun, the joy? What's going on after dark in places like Prenzlauenberg? The area has actually now become more famous. It's more well-known for going to really nice restaurants. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the nightlife has pretty much, it's changed a lot. There was an article in the German local newspaper recently talking about the the closure of the last nightclub in Prenzlauerberg because the whole area is, is now full of yummy mummies, young families, rich people from Swabia. Uh, not very nice um, comments about Swabians colonizing uh, Prenzlauerberg because they have more money. Pushing um, the free spirit further away, as Holger further was talking about. But it is still a really lovely place. I mean, I'm coming up from Kreuzberg, which is a bit rough around the edges where I live. You come up to Prenzlauerberg and what strikes you is these huge, colossal uh, sidewalks mm. and then very, very smart facades. And it's very picturesque, in particular areas like Kollwitzplatz, which is now the most expensive square in Berlin. Macy Hitchcock co-hosts an English-language podcast about expat life in Berlin at radiospatekauf.com. That's spelled S-P-A-E-T-K-A-U-F. And Holger Zimmer is a producer at Berlin's primary public radio outfit, RBB. You'll find links to both of them with this week's show in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Holger, when you want to go out and dance or drink with friends or tango, What's going on? I know Prince Lamenberg is the last nightclub closed. Yeah, but, but it goes both ways. So it's not only like a very boring neighborhood anymore. That's not true. I mean, right. I live, still live around there and there's, things are going on still. And one really nice thing to do is, and we both agree on that, you know, Museum Island is like, wow, that's wonderful. It's kind of high culture. But right next to that, it's the Spray River. And there's a beach cafe. They have a little theater actually there and they do open air for free tango night sessions. So you're underneath the stars dancing the tango, looking at the wonderful classicist facades of Museum Island next to Bode Museum. That's like, and they really have a wonderful open-air theater, so it's also lots of things going on, concerts right at the riverside. You mentioned the beach on the Spree. Now, when I grew up, the Spree River was 
barbed wire, and, and it was the wall of Berlin in the form of a river. And now the spree, the city has no longer turned its back on the spree, but is facing the spree, embracing the spree. Yeah, so as you said, sometimes the, the river was like a border actually on, you know, at the wall side. So suddenly, wow, you have these amazing, you know, properties, these amazing grounds right next to the river. Suddenly, boom, free because the wall is gone. And now you can use these. And like they put, you know, a bit of sand there and then put some, some deck chairs. And there you go. You, you, got a, you got a music box going and you serve some nice, you know, drinks that you... The Berlin Riviera. That's what it is. Yeah, and it's actually very funky and funny and a lot of people go there so it's not a touristy thing it's really something that everyone likes now the the big news from a sightseeing and a, and a renovation point of view is on unter den linden the main street through the heart of berlin which now is really alive because of course it was the main street uh, before the wall with the wall it sort of cut it off now with the wall down the center of berlin is woven back together again and the the emperor's uh, palace was an architectural showpiece of the city then torn down, and the communist, uh, what was it called, the Palace of the People? Yeah, the Stadtschloss was there, like, but that was really the Emperor's Palace. The Prussian kings and emperors and kaisers would live there in the city. And then the communists tore it down in the 50s because they said, oh, we want to get rid of this kind of Prussian symbol. And they put up the Volks... Ah, no, Palace to, der Republik. Palace der Republik. See, it's, it's so long gone Palace already. der Republik. Palace der Republik. But I remember now, going there during the during the DDR time, the communist times, and it was like, wasn't it nicknamed Honecker's um, light store? He was like selling yeah. all the lights. There were so many Honey's lights there. Laden, genau. yeah. <laughs> Honecker's lamp shop. But what's happening now? Now there is a huge building site again in Berlin, nothing new, but amazing. It's a huge undertaking now that basically the federal government together with Berlin and some cultural operators are doing. They put up the Schloss again, the, the castle, mm -hmm. and they want to actually, they call it Humboldt Forum. So they really want to form a piece within the city now that is kind of partly museum. Some of the ethnographic museum collection will move there, partly science center learning, part of the university actually will use it, and part as a library. So it's supposed to be a center for kind of open learning culture. It's a huge undertaking. The only thing is with Berlin, we never really know where the money is coming from and if there will be money enough. So the building is going up as we speak. It has reached like I think his height now, like it's the, the whole kind of concrete building is there. And now they want to put a nice Baroque facade on that. And that's a little big discussion about that. So you have this big cultural center and then you put the, the facade of the former emperor's palace on the front of this modern cultural center. We'll see what happens. Holger Zimmer and Macy Hitchcock, thanks so much for giving us an update on the most dynamic city I think we can fairly say in Europe, Berlin. Vielen Dank. Thank you. The economic debate in Europe gets personal next on Travel with Rick Steves with perspectives from two of the hardest-hit countries, Spain and Greece, and from the heart of the EU in Brussels. We're at 877-333-7425. Or post your thoughts in our online forum. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Unemployment figures for Europe's major countries show that Greece and Spain are at the top of the list. Roughly a quarter of their workforce is without a job. A few weeks ago, Greek voters responded to years of government austerity cutbacks and privatization by decisively swinging their country to the left. Their new prime minister has been promising to restructure Greece's debt repayments and to veer away from the painful austerity measures advocated by Germany's Angela Merkel. 
and Spain is expected to call for a general election of its own this fall. With European economic problems in the news every day, we thought you'd appreciate an inside look right now on Travel with Rick Steves at how people are living with the financial crisis in two of the hardest-hit countries. Joining us from Greece is Anastasia Gaitanou. And Francisco Glaria comes to us from Spain. They both make their living as tour guides. Also joining us is Hilbrun Weiss. Hilbrun divides his time between tour guiding and teaching at the European Communication School in Brussels. Anastasia, Francisco, Hilbrun, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to see you. Francisco and Anastasia are from two of the countries that were the most, the hardest hit, Spain and Greece. And Hilbrun, you've been involved in think tanks and teaching and lecturing in uh, the EU capital in Brussels. We'll start with you, Hilbrun. Review the crisis or the recession or the downturn or, or whatever Europeans call it. Uh, I, I think it started in 2008. What was it? Why was it caused? And where are we at today? Very good. Well, the narrative that we're presented in Europe tends to be that the crisis is made in the USA, that it started with the uh, the housing and the banking crisis in the USA and that our economies being so linked precipitated an economic downturn in the European Union, which has led to a two-pronged affair. We have now a sovereign debt crisis as well as a uh, personal debt crisis, people rendering themselves insolvent by having too high loans on, on housing in particular. So countries had debts and people. Had, there was just too much debt everywhere you look at it in Europe. That's correct. People were playing the fiddle when they should have been saving up. And it was interwoven with the United States. So when the United States gets a cold, some countries get a cold with it. Absolutely. Which countries were hit the hardest? To my mind, it seems that it's uh, countries in the South in particular. So uh, we're going to be talking about Greece, we'll be talking about Spain. Italy has had uh, trouble with this. Other countries have been able to postpone their, their sovereign debt crises by spending themselves through the crisis. In Belgium, we saw initially very little of the crisis because many people went under generous uh, unemployment schemes. So Stimulus spending. Absolutely. So this is the big discussion in America. Should you scale back and be responsible by not spending money you don't have? That would be the austerity approach. Or should you have stimulus spending and stoke the economy by pumping more money into the system? Generally, what has been the European approach to the the Great Depression and, and what has been working? We've seen both approaches. And I will take one example, which I think is a uh, sort of a best of both worlds approach. In the Netherlands, they haven't given people any money, any additional money over over what they, they would otherwise have had. What we have seen instead is that a series of infrastructure programs that had been programmed already, that had been planned in advance over the course of the next 25 years, were brought into a faster a faster scale. So it well, means that... fast-tracked projects instead of putting them on the shelf. That's correct. So it means that if you drive through the Netherlands now, there's construction everywhere, but it's been able to inject money into the economy that can be seen and we hope will serve as an investment but for... But that would be called stimulus spending here in America, and some people would say that's reckless and just building up a bigger debt is the assessment in the Netherlands that this is how you stoke the economy and it's a, a good way to put it into an oxygen tent kind of... The way to argue in favor of this is to say that these plans were going to go ahead anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the same time, it is very important for the Dutch also that they can rein in the sovereign debt issue. Anastasia Gaitanou from Greece. Greece is famously hit hard by the economic crisis. Uh, Why did Greece get hit so hard, and how has it affected your world in Thessaloniki? Well... There are lots of reasons why it was hit so hard, but one of the reasons is it was the first country where it was made known that there was a crisis or a recession or however you want to call it. It started already in the 80s because till the early 80s we had always a very conservative government that was mainly focused on an elite. On an elite. Uh, elite, Ah, So they were taking care of their elite class. Mainly. So when we had for the first time a socialist government, they wanted to make sure that everybody would get the idea that they were providing for low classes, for people who had no benefits so far. And it was exactly the same time when we became a full member of the European Union. And back then we were only 12. And we were the smallest with the worst economy, which means that we got most of the money. You then. were 12 countries in the European 12 Union? 12 countries, So Greece exactly. was the, uh, the needy country of the 12. Number 12. So and unfortunately... All that money came suddenly after a very long period of poverty, of a lot of trouble, of military coups. So finally, suddenly, Greece had money and people had money and that money was spent in the wrong way. It was not invested in infrastructure. It was mainly invested in raising salaries, raising pensions, 
on the in the growth of the public sector and especially whenever we had elections a public sector that grew to become too big mm -hmm. and apart from that there were also no controls or almost known controls and as i usually say like metaphorically if you have a, a vase with honey in front of you and it's open it doesn't matter how untouchable you are eventually you will stick your finger in it and some and did the honey. stick so the finger big vase some full bathed of honey in it and people bathed in it in greece some. so there there was a time in other words when when greece joined the eu the rich countries were all about giving money to the more poor countries so they could develop better and poor countries thought relatively poor countries thought free money but it wasn't free money it was actually a loan that it needed to be paid someday well it's not exactly a loan every country contributes some money yeah. to the european union that gets redistributed The smaller the country is and the worse the economy is, the less your contribution. But the more money you get back, that has to be invested in very specific programs. And the various governments that we had so far, till the recession started, managed always to cook the results of those investments. Cook, cook the numbers to make it look like it was going okay? The right way, which it was not. Our discussion on Travel with Rick Steves about the reasons behind Europe's economic crisis features Anastasia Gaetanou from Greece, Hilburn Baez from Belgium, and we'll check in with Francisco Gloria from Spain in just a minute. Okay, Hilburn Baez, this is interesting that you've got net givers and net uh, receivers within the European Union. Can you describe that? Yes, this shouldn't be a foreign idea to Americans as, as in the United States we're in a, a federal entity as well. So essentially what we have is everybody contributes a certain amount of their gross domestic product to the European Union and that gets redistributed through a program that we call structural funds. Structural funds are directed infrastructure and societal projects that countries will be invested in in order to achieve economic results later on. Much the way the interstate highway system was a federal project, different states contributed differently to it and benefited to it from it differently, but the federal government was able to finance the entire project. So the thinking in a vast free trade zone like America or Europe, uh, the chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Identify those correct. links, invest in them so they become stronger. I remember being in Portugal during this time when they were flush with money. Scaffolding was everywhere. And people said, well, we've got this money and if we don't use it, We're going to lose it. So they were starting all sorts of projects, and then one day they woke up and they realized, oh, this was not a free gift. We actually have debts now, and the, the source of that money has dried up. Uh, was this a, a misunderstanding between countries? That means that they decided to spend in addition to the structural funds. It may have been an adverse effect of mm -hmm. uh, introducing highway projects. You own a large swath of land next to a, a highway. You may say, this is wonderful. I can start a hotel complex. The banks will trust me because there's this new highway here. The highway may have been financed by the European Union. It may not have been a loan per se, but then the optimism that went around it could have been uh, misplaced. A prescription for a recession, really. A house of cards collapsing in a lot of ways. Yes and no. Uh, structural funds are important. We need to get all of the European connected with uh, communications, highways, train systems, all these things. This is important. Joining the European Union shouldn't be announced as, as a new era of prosperity automatically. Each country needs to work its way up to that prosperity, utilizing the tools that have been granted through different programs. Francisco Gloria from Pamplona in Spain. How did the economic crisis hit Spain? Well, Spain, first of all, we started denying that there was a crisis. It took forever for our government to say the word crisis. In fact, it was on the news. Oh, finally, he has said, everybody was saying there was a big crisis. And the biggest problem is that the European community was giving us money and we were spending it. But we were spending it on very useless things. We have made airports 50 kilometers apart, one from each other. We have airports that have never been used because there's no need for them, but they needed to spend the money. We thought we were rich. Hmm. We were not. That was the biggest deal. There were constructions that the banner saying how much they were going to spend doing this garden cost more than the garden itself. So it was very stupid. It was a very useless way of spending money. Plus, instead of hiring Spanish people, we hire people from outside because we didn't. the Spanish people didn't want to work doing all of those things. This sounds similar to Anastasia's story from Greece, is that, that vase of honey, and, oh, this free money, let's do this. Now, you compound that problem by hiring people from outside instead of Spaniards, actually admitting that the Spaniards don't want to work so hard. Now, I would think if I was up in Germany, I would think, well, this is the land of the siesta, and the Spaniards need to roll up their sleeves <laughs> and, and work harder. Is that an, a reasonable uh, feeling from Northern Europe that the people in Spain don't have the same work ethic? 
more than work ethic, I think we have different work philosophy. The northern countries, we always say that they're very professional. They're very, they prevent possible difficulties. In the southern, the Mediterranean, we don't prepare anything, but we're great. When there's a problem, we're the best solving problems. So, that is, so you have a lot of practice solving problems. Yes, but not 100 years, 1,000 years. I mean, we're talking with people from Greece. Yeah. <laughs> 3,000 years of history yeah. of solving problems. There's a minotaur. Let's go kill it. Marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> so those little things is like the way we are. Yeah. You know, the, the northern, they have Valkyrias. We have minotaurs. <laughs> so the northern mythology, they're all workers. Yeah. We are all having sex and drinking wine. <laughs> about, think about our mythology. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're uh, talking about having sex and drinking wine as we deal with economic crises in Spain. We're joined by Anastasia Gaetanu from Thessaloniki in Greece, Francisco Glaria from Pamplona in Spain, and Hilburn Bais from Brussels. Anastasia, Francisco just said that there's something in the culture in Spain where people don't have the similar approach to work. Uh, I would think a, a lot of people would look at Greece and say, they just are not producing as much per person. They're not working as hard and with as much focus. What is a Greek take on that? I personally disagree, but of course there have been reasons for mm -hmm. that perspective. One is the standard cliche, you're all Alexis Orbis just dancing at the seaside and nothing else. Mm -hmm. uh, not caring about anything and what will happen, which is not true. Another thing definitely has to do with our climate. If you do have like 230 days of sunshine in the north and 300 days of sunshine in the south, yes, of course, you spend most of the time outside mm -hmm. in the sun. And that has been many times misinterpreted. And then we have this huge public sector and definitely a lot of the people working there have not been working hard enough because it was not allowed to fire public officers till recently. Uh, there was a reason for that as well. In the 30s, whenever we had elections, then every government would fire all the public sector to hire their own. And that ah. would keep on going like so that. That's so, the heritage of that, because uh, so I know in order it's tough to, to fire people in many exactly countries. Their job, then, it was not allowed to fire them anymore. But that, in the 80s and 90s, backfired. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because you knew that you had a secure job, mm -hmm. nobody could move you from there, even if you wouldn't appear. So that's an abuse of that protection of the workers. Practically, is that yes. changing now? Is there more of a realism? It is changing. It is changing, and this is one of the measures that we have to take. Okay. Of course, there are a lot of protests. There is a lot of protests for it's that. It's difficult to tell workers that the rules are going to change on you. It's always difficult to change rules. But on the other hand, what we are very skeptical about is how they're going to reduce the public sector because we're not sure if there can be a decent, really good evaluation of the dynamics you have and how they're going to decide who they have to fire and who gets to stay. So is it going to be again, do you stay because you know somebody or you stay because you were really well evaluated? And there is a culture of corruption, I would say, in Greece that needs to be dealt with. Oh. What, what is the thinking about corruption in Greece? Corru we definitely have corruption, uh, definitely. Although I don't think it's much more than in other countries in the south, maybe less in the north, but that is a very long tradition. I will go a thousand years before our time, when we had the Byzantine times, there was even a tax for kickbacks. I mean, everything worked. They taxed the kickbacks. They were yeah. so straightforward about getting kickbacks that they would yeah. actually a thousand report it on AD, their tax. It was common knowledge that everybody got kickbacks. So uh -huh. in 1000 AD, you paid for kickbacks, a tax. And that continued. Then we were a, a part of the Ottoman Empire that worked like that as well. And then after we became, for the first time, a free state, and that was very late in 1830, we got a Bavarian king who suddenly brought a whole Bavarian public sector to Greece, a country that was completely destroyed from war back then because it was a revolution against the Ottoman Empire. Everything was destroyed. There was no infrastructure. People, the only thing they knew was how to deal with Ottoman authorities in that way and fight, nothing else. So you can't just snap your finger and say no more corruption. This no. is a, a heritage so issue. that goes on, and it went on also during the military coups. So... You can't expect people to change their perspective from one day on the other. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the European Union and how it's dealing with its economic challenges or crisis. Francisco, in Spain, is there a sense that the public sector is too big, and how are you dealing with that? Well, the public sector is not big, it's huge. The difference with the Greece is that we cannot fire the public sector. But the government, what they're doing, instead of firing in the public sector, they're lowering their salaries. So right now, any person that works for the government, they're getting about 20 to 25 less, 25 percent, percent less. less so you're, you're, you're shrinking your public sector by not, not peeling away people, but just paying them yeah. less. But this sounds like a pervasive problem in, in much of Europe that you just can't fire people. The public sector is so big and you can't downsize. Hilburn, what is the general awareness in Europe that this needs to be addressed? I think it's it's very clear that this needs to be addressed. Uh, the trouble is that those vested interests that benefit from having lifelong employment that are looking forward to having early retirement uh, because that's been promised in their employment package is a very strong interest group as well. It's embarrassing to see Brussels on the news for riots in the street over having to work two years longer and having to accept a different uh, compensation package and having to save more for one's retirement and these sorts of things, which are, from a, a national accounting perspective, absolutely necessary. Don't you Europeans understand how we Americans have to work and work and work, and we don't retire until many years after you. But I wish we <laughs> Europeans could get our head around that because it's it's becoming necessary. It's a very interesting issue, isn't it? I mean, a lot of American conservatives really would make a very good case that you need to be able to shrink the public sector, you need to be able to fire people. Especially, I think, the issue is we have geriatric societies now relative to the past. There's too many old people living on huge entitlements and benefits based on the assumption there's a lot of young people working and there just aren't these young people out there anymore. And the, the social system in Europe was established in such fashion where people would retire at 65 because life expectancy for men was 72. Now people live much longer than 72 and people are 30 years in retirement and the likes. And this is not what our retirement pension funds are geared up for. The equation is no longer there. Yes. Mama me have, Papa me have. But God bless the child that's got his own, that's got his own. With the U.S. dollar much stronger against the euro these days, American travelers are finding their own spending power is much improved this year in Europe. But right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're looking at the stories behind the headlines that contribute to the weaker level for the euro and the financial policies people are debating in Europe. Hilburn Baez comes to us from Brussels. Francisco Gloria lives near Pamplona in Spain. And Anastasia Gaitanu comes to us from Thessaloniki in Greece. By the way, the Financial Times ranked Thessaloniki as the top mid-sized city of the future last year for its human capital and lifestyle. We're exploring more of the issues around the Greek financial bailout in just a minute. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. We're exploring the economic issues facing several member states of the European Union right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're looking at the issues being debated in Greece with Anastasia Gaitanu, in Spain with Francisco Gloria, and Hilburn Baez brings us his views from the heart of the EU, where he lectures at the European Communication School in Brussels. 877-333-7425. That's our phone number, and you can send us your thoughts on the topic by email at radio at ricksteves.com. I want to talk just a little bit about Europe bailing out Greece. Anastasia, why does Germany continually agree to send billions of euros to Greece to help prop up your economy? What, what's in it for Germany? As a Greek person, you, you must wonder how can they continually do this? Well, it's not Germany. Well, Actually, Germany it's, dominates it's, the European uh, Union. It's the European Union. I suppose when, the, when it first happened, when they realized that there was a recession, they were afraid of that domino effect. They were afraid that other countries that were going into recession as well, and they 
could not maybe evaluate correctly what could happen if we would exit from the European Union. I suppose that. On the other hand, Germany is definitely the the strongest economy at this point within the European Union, but they're not alone. There are many countries there, and we always try to think in the benefit of all the Union, not just of one country. We have borrowed money from the International Monetary Fund, from the European Bank, and although the general idea is that we keep getting money without really doing anything. This is not true. Greece has been affected a lot. I believe that the measures that have been taken were not the correct ones. Definitely they had to be taken. I mean, measures had to be taken, but the program that was applied to Greece was a program that would be maybe perfect for an industrial country, which we're not because the first thing they did was to cut salaries, reduce salaries and reduce wages, which is perfect if you have an industrial product because that lowers the price of your end product so you can export better and you're competitive in the markets. But when you don't have a product, the only thing you have is people who have less money, who cannot meet their obligations anymore because, wrong or right, we always organize our lives on the salary we get so and on our obligations. And the bank does not think, oh God, now you get 50% less, let's see what we can do with your loan. They don't care. So you mm-hmm. have to try find a way to meet your obligations. In the very small industry we had, it closed down. There is nothing left. People could not find a, a job anymore. We have officially 26% unemployment, but among people between 25 and 45, it's more than 56%. We have about 30,000 young people who have left Greece to go to other countries to work. And the question, of course, above all is, if you're trying to build something there and save the country... Home are you building on? If the youth goes, then mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing left. And I believe that what should have been done would be because our main income is services. 80% is services. So you need to give the chance to a country to stabilize and fight bureaucracy, mm-hmm. have a taxation system that is constant. Don't change the taxation law every year. Give the impression to a foreign company that it can invest and it's worth it mm. to invest. Try to help the country itself. Don't try to get the money of the people because that will work out only in short terms. What will you do afterwards? I'll give you one example. My father worked his whole life very hard to get a good pension. And he did get one. He got his pension when he was 71. That was his choice. I mean, he could have gotten it in 65, but it was his choice. And he got 2,400 euros pension, which is very good money. $3,000 a month. About. Mm -hmm. So from 2,400 euros, now after all those measures, he gets 1,200. And he has worked his whole life for that. People I know who got... 1,200 now get seven and 600. So this is the sad reality of the new austerity programs. These people who had thought they had a reasonable retirement now are living on 50% of what they hoped. Yeah, and it's salaries themselves. You can hire people under 25 years of age for 400 euros a month. You can't live on that money. So people are looking for work in Greece for $500 a month. It's almost like a developing country. Yeah, it and sounds life kind is of not bleak. cheap. It sounds kind of uh, bleak. Are you hopeful at all for the Greek economy? Yes, <laughs> we're always hopeful and we're always optimistic, not based on our government or on our politicians, because that's my humble opinion. I don't believe that there are any really competent politicians left in my country. But we do have this proverb, when you hit the bottom of the bucket, then the only way is up. Of course, on the other hand, I don't know if we have hit the bottom yet no. or not. But in the last year, at least, I see more people going out. We have a coffee culture, you know, like going out with Mm -hmm. friends, drinking coffee. I see more people going out. I see more cars on the road. And for two years, there was almost no car on the road because you noticed it. So things are kind of picking up. Okay, Francisco in Spain. Are they looking harder at the siesta culture? Are they looking harder at the realities of how can we keep up in a globalized, hard-hitting economy? Well, the siesta, I think, is more um, a myth than a reality. So that's uh, not an issue known in Spain. I, I have yeah. never taken a siesta, but right. stores, they're really close from 2 to 4. That's Stores close yeah. from 2 to 4. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a lot of stores. The main city is that you're going to find everything open. How we're fighting against the crisis, that's a big issue right now in Spain. People don't have money to spend. We pay 
about 28% of our salary to pay the house, which is way too much. We spend uh, about 27% of our salary in taxes, and we our salaries have been reduced about a 20%, so we don't have money to spend in and extra place. squeezed every way. Yeah. More taxes, more, less more, payment, more, more. more expenses for your rent, everything. So we don't have money to spend. That is probably the biggest problem we have right now in Spain. The banks are protected. You know, you pay the house, they give you a loan, and if you cannot pay, they get you out of the house, and you still owe the money, which is incredible. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? I mean, the banks are protected. You're sort of enslaved to your yeah. debt. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Anastasia Gaetanou from Greece, Francisco Glaria from Spain, and Hilburn Baez from Belgium, talking about Europe's economic challenges, Europe's economic struggles. Hilburn, this all sounds like there's some fundamental problems that need to be dealt with. Is the European Union coming out swinging on this? Is there an aggressive approach to this? Or is everybody going to continue with their heritage that causes structural weakness in the economy? To put things into perspective, I think that most people's expectations in Europe is always the state must. The authorities must find a solution. And uh, there's a mistake in that, a fundamental mistake insofar as it begins with people to take initiative. People should start businesses and start working. That's and a different mindset. It's a very different when mindset. When I was in Scandinavia, if there was a problem, people just said the government let us down. The state must is this mantra that one hears consistently. And it's a terrible shame. The good news on this, however, is that around me I see more and more youths who will select uh, after finishing university or prior to commencing university technical or vocational studies. We're seeing people opening bakeries that are very successful. People like going to little bakeries, and they're opened by young people, people taking on new trades or, or ancient trades. But is there an were... appetite in Europe for less regulations and more freedom for small business people to hire and fire people? Because it's very expensive to employ somebody in Europe, and it's also very dangerous because you're stuck with somebody when your business can no longer afford it that you cannot cut loose. Yes, absolutely. We have a democratic system with a great deal of people who are on the left who would prefer not to see anything change to our our social protection as employees and a whole number of people are towards the center center right who are advocating a much more what we would call a liberal or liberalized economy where, yes, people should be able to hire and fire a little bit more at will. People should be able to open a business with much less difficulty than it is today. And that would be a way with which people could individually pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Anastasia and Francisco, can you understand from a Spanish and a Greek point of view why future economic uh, well-being means to liberalize the laws so employers can hire and fire wow. easier? Right now in Spain and in Greece, we have one big political change. The two main political parties, we don't believe in them anymore. There's a big corruption. And in both countries, political party has been created. In Greece, it's Syriza. And in Spain, it's called Podemos. I'm not going to talk about Syriza because I don't know about it. But Podemos, they're left-wing. And social, 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 social. Spain needs a change. And I don't think this is the change we need. But they're going to win. Why? Because our politicians, you know, the conservative and the socialist party, they're terrible. They're terrible, terrible. They've been stealing since Franco times. So we don't believe in them anymore. I cannot vote anybody but Podemos. Should I so vote? you have to hold your nose and choose between a lesser of evils. But the thing is that this Podemos is Hugo Chavez. It's Castro way of thinking. It's like, what? Don't we have somebody in the middle that can deal with it? That's the biggest problem we have right now in Spain. We don't have anybody to vote for. This is the saddest thing for me in my travels, is to recognize the importance of capable governance. I've been in countries that are fiascos, and it's because their governments are so corrupt, and there's no alternative for the people. Anastasia? Oh, I have the same feeling. So that is a big problem always, because whenever we have elections, it's a big problem, because they're all the same. I mean, it doesn't matter if they're left-wing or right-wing or center or whatever. At the end, it all comes down to the same thing. And, of course, always we have either a different party that gets the majority of the votes, because in the last years we had a coalition government, which shows also that people are not really putting their trust into one party, because people are disappointed. These politicians who are constantly promising us to get us out of this recession and save us are the first ones who put us in this situation in the first place. People really just vote for one party or the other just to see what that guy is capable of doing, and it's, again, a disappointment. 
And this, again and again. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Europeans' economic struggles. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Damon's calling in from Scottsdale in Arizona. Hi, Damon. Hi, how are you today? Great. Do you have a comment for our panelists? Yeah, over the last, I'll say, 15, 20 years, I've been traveling to Europe on business and vacation. But I certainly noticed since 2008 when we had that sort of crash around the world. And I was in Barcelona last summer, uh, Paris... And it seemed like there are a lot more people begging more than usual. And it seemed like they were well-dressed. And we thought maybe things have gotten kind of bad economically for folks. So as a traveler, I've been more astute about going to an ATM machine and, and carrying cash more safely and so forth. And wondering, is that what people have been generally feeling as they travel through Europe the last few years? Boy, I find that's a very interesting issue. When times get tough, are there more beggars? Are there more thieves? Francisco, what is the case in Spain? Well, in Spain, uh, we've had a lot of beggars during Christmas time, and none of them, they were Spanish. We have a lot of people from the Eastern countries, mm-hmm. and it was terrible because you could see the people begging for money for like three, four, five hours, and suddenly a guy with a Mercedes coming, picking them mm-hmm. up. Me, uh, tourists, a lot of people, they want to give money to them. And I always tell them, do not give money to them. If you want to give them money, give it to the church or to a non-governmental mm-hmm. organization. Do never give to beggars in the street. They're probably in a mafia and they're, you're not doing good. So there are other ways to give money away. Hilburn, what's your take on that? I can't agree with that more. I think it's correct. If, if we start giving money to beggars, it becomes a business and there are sufficient programs. Especially I'm, in Europe. Especially in Europe. So these people are not going to go hungry. There are more people on the streets. It is dramatic to see this. It has to do with the fact that we cannot absorb the same amount of employees as we were able to in the past, even in the informal sector. As far as insecurity goes, I think criminals in Europe or pickpockets in Europe remain mostly opportunists. Damon, you're, uh, you uh, sensed something that uh, our friends here are sensing also. Thanks for your call. Thanks for your time. So this is a good point, Hilburn, that there may be desperation more than before, but it doesn't mean there's more violent crime necessarily. And I think from a traveler's point of view, it's not a, a danger thing. It's just be on guard. And remember, a lot, of, a lot of the beggars are in a business that's coming in from a country far to the east, and they've got uh, operators that are organizing them, and we don't want to be taken advantage of that. I want to talk just for a moment about the euro. My sense, and Hilburn, help me on this, is... In the old days, when you had the Deutschmark, the drachma, the peseta, if one country wasn't performing, the value of its currency might go down relative to the Deutschmark. Now with the euro, we have 300 million people or so with the same currency, and if one country within that huge economic zone is not performing as well as, say, the Germans, there's no way to, in mass, deflate the way they're paid by devaluing their currency, so everybody is buoyed up by the new incarnation of the Deutschmark, which would be the euro. And the problem is it gives a false affluence to the less productive countries and there's no systemic way to get them back into reality. Does that make any sense to you? It makes sense to me. Currency exchange is is not my speciality, but I do understand that the European currencies have been linked since the 1970s, roughly. So they were pegged to one another essentially in such a fashion as through regular negotiations they would be re-evaluated and and changed. So if one country needed to be less valuable relative to the more productive countries, that could happen in a countrywide way. A country's economy is overheating, they could negotiate to have their currency devaluated in order for them to be able to cool down their Is that a healthy tool or a helpful tool? I think it's a tool that aids and encourages sovereignty. In terms of creating a European currency, it doesn't help to have all the currencies linked and having to renegotiate them all the time. The euro has been a very practical establishment. I think it's useful in many ways. I think one shouldn't regret too much seeing countries leaving from it either. There are certain applications of one's currency management that help in, for instance, encouraging exports, encouraging production. And these these manipulations now are no longer part of the toolkit. So it's not a possibility when you're tied with the euro. And if you wanted to break away from the euro and reestablish the escudo in Portugal, you would then be able to fire up your economy and and make up for lost ground uh, by manipulating the value of your currency, which they don't have that tool now. Fascinating information. Anastasia, in Greece, is there any consideration that might be healthy for Greece to leave the Eurozone? Well, there are some who think it, but the main impression is the opposite. Mm -hmm. Uh, That for the country itself, 
it is better to stay within the Eurozone. One thing I just wanted to point out very quickly is that apart from all the negative sides of that recession, there is a positive side. Till that time where people had money, or believed at least that they had money, they became too egoistic, too selfish, too just looking after themselves. And this recession has made us look to each other again and go back to core values, traditional values, rediscovering who we are and our identity. The um, things I have seen in my country in the last years of how people really completely selflessly try to help each other, even if they themselves don't really have enough and how many things have been organized to help people and how many donations and, and how we try to cut from our own to give to others. It's something really I hadn't seen for a very long time. I feel till a point grateful that this has happened because it has made us realize our, our humanity. And it's, it's the positive side of it. Definitely, I'm not saying that it's always good to have a recession to remember no. that. Definitely not. But it's the positive side of it that was I've just heard that comment amazing. from many countries, from, from Iceland to Portugal to Greece. Francisco? Spain, we're doing exactly the same. Charity programs and everything, they seem to have received over a 20% more than about five years ago, hmm. which is incredible. I mean, we're all in crisis. Our salaries have been reduced, but we're giving more. So you're tighter. You need each other more. We and, need each other. And on top of that, we should remember that most people on this planet wished they had Europe's economic problems. Oh, well, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> With that thought, I want to thank each of you for joining us, and uh, let's hope the best for all of us to get good governance and smart economies. Thanks a lot. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Dark Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe through the back door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. You'll find more to each week's show in the radio section of ricksteves.com. That's where you can listen again whenever you like. Rick has also recorded walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. Look in the radio section of ricksteves.com for a link to Rick's audio tour app. Join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.